Except for Amos, who's wearing a red hat and has grown a beard and is a dictator. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Smurfs for no reason at all other than hashtag Smurfing. Uh, we're going to put a movie director or a music director to the m- movie Criminal, which isn't out yet. And then we're going to review and summarize Criminal by Ed Brubeck and artist Sean Phillips. So, let's get into it with some Smurf facts. The Smurfs were created by Belgian comic artist Peo, a.k.a. Pierre Culliford, in 1958, called Les Stumpfus in his native French. The Smurfs are specifically three apples tall. That's a Smurf fact. They're much smaller than that in the actual Smurf cartoons. Yeah. I guess it matters how big apples they're, are. They're, honestly, they're kind of well, big. Well, yeah, because apples have like, gotten bigger. Yes, crab that's apples, true. So. Tiny little French crab apples stacked on. Listen, if there's a Smurf that's this tall, fuck that. That's about 12 inches? Is that what Oh, that's more like 8 or 9. 8 or 9 inches. It's like that thing from Tales from the Dark Side, that little fucker with the knife that runs around at the end of the movie. Anyways, that's what I think of when I talk about an 8-inch Smurf. But that's not in the Smurf's nature anyway. What is the scariest height? A, two, a two foot tall Smurf is, is big enough that I'm like, you're just some little dude. That's not as creepy to me as an eight inch Smurf. And then a, a four inch Smurf, which is how I imagine them, because they live in fucking mushrooms. They can't be that big. They're not nine inches. What the fuck kind of mushroom is that? Not big enough for a nine inch Smurf. Listen, I know. Just a great. Not big enough for a nine inch man to live in. <laughs> what, what kind of four foot mushroom are we talking listen, about? Listen, listen, I was I was reviewing a uh, like in college, I was reviewing a um, a paper that the, the person who sat next to me in class had written before You're we gave it to the teacher. Uh, we, we had to do that peer review thing where you have to review the papers, and he was describing how tall the person in the story was, and it, it Has said, to be a smurf. "It said no, no, no." It said he was he's as tall. Smurfing. He was as tall as a five foot nine tree. I was like, "What? Cool. He's five foot nine? What was that?" That was a very I have a college creative writing major kind of sentence. I think I've got a question because I mean, of course, you know, we all remember the Smurf from the story too. Yeah. yeah. And I never associated it with anything else. I remember as a kid, you know, one night they showed the uh, the magic flute. They they it's a movie. It was an actual like film, and if I'm not mistaken, it was a French film. But they translated it because you know the popularity of the Smurfs here in the U.S. with that cartoon series. But how did that deal go down? Like how did that translate? Like Smurfs from being in France to being an American commodity because I mean it's that never really happened. They never really happened with Tintin, and it never really happened with 
answer. I know that answer because yes. of my in-depth smurf that I've been doing. I've, I've been smurfing the internet. <laughs> I've been smurfing the internet. So the thing is that like some rich uh, car- <laughs> some rich TV dude saw his daughter playing with a uh, smurf toy. No, there's no stoops. And he was like, if my daughter's good enough for this, then by golly, there's gonna be a cartoon about it. Went just like that. In other Smurf news, Smurfette was created by Gargamel as part of a plot to breed jealousy and discord among little blue gnomes. The recipe for Smurfette is as follows. Sugar and spice, but nothing nice. A dram of crocodile tears. Peck of bird brain. Tip of an adder's tongue, half a pack of lies, white, and the slimest of a cat. Well, white is the most evil Vanity in that of picture. a peacock, chatter of a magpie, guile of a vixen, and the disposition of a shrew. And of course, a stone for her heart. Wow. That backfired, didn't it? Peo did not <laughs> like women at yeah, all. Yeah, no. <laughs> was a total MRA. I, was, that a, was that a pin name for Patrice O'Neill? <laughs> I like how everything is very well written in that. Like a peck of this and a vial of that. And then it's just white. <laughs> no, hold on. Is that, is that referring to the types of lies? Like, okay, like, what does it say? A half a, a pack half of lies, lies, comma white, white, of course. Yeah. Okay. White lies. I, I prefer it to be half a pack of lies, comma and white, of course. <laughs> Just the color Just white. The color white. <laughs> um, so in 1959, there was a Smurf story called the Black Smurfs, which was changed for good reason <laughs> to the Purple Smurfs in the U.S. But it is cited as the earliest example of zombie fiction. Apparently, there's a black fly that flew around and smurfed them, stung smurfs, turning them black, making them zombies, who would then eat the other smurfs, basically Night of the Living Smurf. Uh, okay, they didn't eat the smurfs, they would just bite them and yeah. turn them into other black smurfs. I'm sure that they accidentally digested a little bit. I mean, no, they spit their tails. Yeah, they eat them. Wait a minute, is that why they don't have tails now? No, they got little nubby tails. They have, I didn't forget that. Yeah. Who's your favorite Smurf? Oh, uh, the mean one. Grumpy or whatever the fuck his name is. What's Grouchy. Grouchy. Grouchy Smurf. Is he the one with the tattoo on his arm, or is that brawny? That's hefty. Hefty or brawny? <laughs> yeah, yeah, either way, they've got a multi-brawny Smurf. Paper towel. Talking about Smurfs, mm-hmm. um, there were a bunch of Smurfs that didn't make it to the... Uh, 1980s cartoon that were in the strips, including Alchemist Smurf, Timid Smurf, Enamored Smurf, Finance Smurf, Mango Smurf. <laughs> All seem like missed opportunity. Mango Smurf. I can't get past that. Yes, Mango Smurf. <laughs> yeah. How many Smurfs were there? Oh, there were infinite amounts, but I mean, the show focused Whatever. on like the court. Ten or twelve of them. Yeah, like whatever, whatever the show needed. Like yeah. it, it's, it's like a, a Star Trek, you know, crew member. Yeah, if this particular episode needed to there showcase were red this, Smurfs, there were, yeah. Well, I guess there's just the one. I know when they you choked. Know that was Papa. That yeah. was Papa. When they choked, they turned purple. Hey, That's what I do you uh, do you think that he loves it when they call him Big Papa? I love it when you call me big. Wait, is that how he talks? No. I, so. I love it when you come. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like Papa. All right. Each of us do your best 
Papa Smurf impersonation, starting with Amos, go. Well, see, that's why I'm asking, is I don't remember what he talks about. So let's not remember and just assume from your memories of childhood, what, this, what does this sound like? Hello! <laughs> I am Papa Smurf! <laughs> I love it when you call me Big Papa Smurf! <laughs> Dave, that's amazing. Give us and your uh, give us your Papa Smurf. Um, that's what she oh, said. Oh, Smurfette, right? Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I got. I don't have a Papa Smurf. He had like kind of almost uh, just a, a, a wizened voice. A wise old man. Yeah. That's what he sounded like. All right, let's hear it, Squire. Hello, I'm Papa Smurf. No, he wasn't fucking Gandalf. <laughs> In my mind, he is. Get behind me, Gargamel. You shall not pass. My name is Papa Smurf, and I'm here to save the village. Your wife is going to divorce you. <laughs> we, we can't blame her. Ah, all my little Smurfs look so happy. Hey, everybody. Let's talk about criminal by Ed Brubecker and Sean Phillips. Uh, This book was recommended to us by Sequoia. And uh, Sequoia, why don't you give us your uh, uh, history lesson on this book and the creative team? I'll be terribly honest with you. I had not read this book prior to uh, us reading it for this podcast. But the thing that kind of inspired me about it is you know, Brubaker signed that exclusive contract to uh, Image, and he's been putting out a lot of work under the uh, Image umbrella. He's got a book coming up in August with Sean Phillips called Killer Be Killed, where he's kind of examining the whole uh, vigilante uh, genre of fiction and stuff. But anyway, I guess the thing that led me to suggesting criminals is the fact, you know, we've done a lot of superhero stuff, and I just thought, you know, maybe it'd be nice every once in a while to kind of read something that didn't have guys in tights punching each other in the face. Let's just, you know, talk about something, you know, read something that's regular people punching each other in the face and sometimes shooting yeah, one another. Indiscriminately murdering. And, yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, Brubaker, he's a very well-regarded uh, comic book writer, you know, early in his history. He was a cartoonist. But uh, he sort of made a name for himself over at DC Comics where he was doing um, Gotham Central and then uh, eventually Catwoman with Darwin Cook. But he kind of gained the reputation of being... Oh, I almost forgot. He did Sleeper for uh, Wildstorm. And he kind of gained the reputation of being this guy who's really good at doing... Uh, crime noir type stories, right? You know, Thriller almost, yeah, exactly. Because you know Gotham Central, that just, that that was that focus on the Gotham City Police Department and them fighting the kind of weird crime that was happening in Gotham. But anyway, by this point, 2006, when Criminal came out, he was over at Marvel. Uh, he was working on Daredevil at the time, if right. I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'm trying to think, what else? Uh, yeah, he was doing Daredevil. And I think maybe Captain America may have been before that. But um, <clears throat> this was under this was put out originally under Marvel's Icon line, which was this separate imprint they created for a lot of their exclusive writers like Mark Millar, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, artists like David Mack. Basically, it allowed them to keep working for Marvel, but also focus well, on some of their more niche stuff. Yeah. Exactly, their their own creator own stuff. So, um, Criminal. Uh, 
only way I can describe it, it's sort of a, I think, you know, in, in its initial run, it was coming out on a more regular basis, but now it's sort of, you know, a series of mini-series, if you will, and I want to say it's about six, maybe seven volumes mm-hmm. in so far. Like six. And I think they just se- uh, celebrated uh, their 10-year anniversary for this series. But, um, you know, uh, I guess the thing that kind of drew me to this, because uh, I don't know what you guys' history is with... Uh, Crime or comics—it's kind of a rare thing. These yeah, there's, days. There's, there's not a lot of it. I mean, even stuff that I um, that I really like—that's along those same lines—is even not really like that. I mean, you're gonna talk about Sleeper, right? Yeah, which is like that, but it's Brewmaker, so yeah. it is what it is. Um, but like, even like Casanova, which isn't technically like more, that's more it's spy like five thriller, thriller, right? Yeah. But I mean, like, that kind of stuff has always really interested me. But there's not a lot of it. Powers is kind of along these lines, but it still kind of deals with the superhero aspect of things. So. Yeah. <clears throat> this, this was kind of a nice, you know, because I, you know, personally back in the 90s, I was really into crime comics um, that were being put out at the time. A lot of that kind of stemmed from me being into crime movies because of Pulp Fiction, uh, was, it, uh, was it Romeo's Bleeding? Yeah. Um, uh, what was the one? True Romance. You know, a lot of that Tarantino stuff, uh, movie I absolutely hate, things to do in Denver when you're dead, but still, stuff that inspired me. Back in those days, you know, you had stuff like Sin City, uh, Armored Rangers. Dangerous. Huh? I said Power Rangers. Yes, Power Rangers. <laughs> kind of what I would <laughs> One of my favorite crime thrillers uh, of all time. Stray Bullets, uh, and even Bendis' early stuff like Jinx and A.K. Goldfish. So Ooh. this book was sort of, you've read Jinx yeah, before? I love yeah. that one. So this is sort of a, a return or a resurgence of that. In uh, my opinion, in the early 2000s. So let's talk a little bit about the protagonist of the story and his weird hair. And his, his very weird hair. Um, <laughs> his name is uh, Leo Patterson, right? I believe so. Leo. Leo. And he Leo grew up. 80s porn star Patterson. Yes. He. He doesn't look like a Leo, I'll be honest with you. He looks more like a Rusty or... (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, I'm I'm right. Uh, So he grew up a uh, child of the streets, learning to pickpocket by his father and um, his uncle, or he calls him his uncle. Yeah, his dad's uh, His dad's best friend. What's his name? Is that... Donnie? Ivan. 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 So that's Ivan. Donnie? I'm just making stuff up, guys. It sounds like a guy that teaches young people to pickpockets. So Ivan was a great criminal at one point and is now being taken care of by Leo. Ivan is addicted to smack and has a lot of nurses that come and go. Because he's also uh, got a what disease does he have? He Alzheimer's. Has Alzheimer's. So I like he couldn't remember. He can't remember that he's not thirty. I also have Alzheimer's apparently. <laughs> um, but no, so Leo no found that remotely amusing. <laughs> Leo's thing is that he's a really great criminal, but he has all of these rules to make sure that a gig is worth doing, right? So, uh, and we learn these, they're not, the rules aren't really spelled out in like a fight club manner, so to speak, but they're kind of for him common sense rules, like you don't work with cops, or, uh, as a a criminal, that seems like, you know, 
One that should be in everybody's book. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess we should start that, you know, the title of the overall series is Criminal, but this particular story or volume is entitled Coward. And right. Coward refers to the protagonist, uh, Leo, um, who's a very cautious uh, criminal. Uh, I guess his specialty is... Uh, Cautious. His pocketing and burglary. His specialty is cowardice. On yeah, burglary. And we're introduced to Leo in the epilogue at the very beginning. Prologue. Prologue. Yeah, that'd be weird. Someone right? would do it. Uh, prologue in the very beginning, it, which is the the heist that goes wrong. Right. And a lot of people get shot. <clears throat> He somehow gets out by putting on a like unitard and well, he's just like a bike messenger. He bikes, yeah. or, or a bank. crash test. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all they're, they're, they're robbing. I guess that's a bank. They're all dressed as uh, in, in in jumpsuits with was it ma- mouse masks or something like that. It kind of yeah. made me think of uh, mouse Frank from Donnie Darko. The, oh, the, Frank the Bunny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Except yeah. they get shot up. And most of the people he's with get shot yeah. up and die, including the husband to a character that we're, or at least boyfriend to a character that we're introduced to, uh, named Greta. Greta Watson. Um, and there's really only like four or five characters in the whole thing. It's a handful of characters. Which, which is good. I felt that throughout this whole book, there weren't too many characters in which I had to remind myself, okay, who is this? Wait a minute, yeah, what does this person do? What what niche in this? And let's be honest, that happens in comic books all the time, where yeah. you're like, wait, what superhero well, is that's, this? That's, that's something that's... I don't know if we specifically talked about it in previous books that we've we've addressed or, or read and, and talked about, but um, the idea that, like, in comics, most often than not, like, things that propel the plot forward since they exist, not just, like, in a two-hour time frame like a film or over, like, a single course of a book, like... MacGuffins come and go in the form of characters right. rotating in and out of the story, and that, to your credit, like that's something that doesn't happen an awful lot. Like here, like there, it's very clear defined roles for the few people they kind of put in your face and say, "Hey, give a shit about these people." And, and the one interesting thing I will say about the Criminal series is, like, even though uh, all the volumes are more or less self-contained stories, you there are people or events that either take place or mention. And previous stories that that pop back up in you know subsequent issues like you know like one thing I went ahead and read volume two uh, Lawless, um, which I won't even talk much about that. But there are characters mentioned in here that pop up in that uh, second volume. Yeah, from what I was reading is that this world is it is one world in which there's a lot of overlap in minor characters or major characters in other books. Uh, the tone to this is, you know, very noir, but it doesn't feel forced at all. No. Even though there are cliches in it that you would expect to be in a noir book, but it's not. I don't know. The way it's delivered is it, very believable. It's very contemporary. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the thing, you know, I, I have to say right off the bat with this, and this is sort of, you know, about. Brubaker and you know Phillips in general is those guys really try to take and I know this is a term that gets overused but a a, a cinematic 
approach to how they make comics, and not just you know the look and layout and feel of the books, but you know before this series ever came to light um, or was released, they they previewed it. And they created what you would call a... They even called it a, a trailer. Where it was where they took a lot of uh, vignettes, scenes, panels from the comic and kind of mashed them together. And I remember this at the time reading it. It felt like I was reading a movie trailer. Because, you know, you're introduced to the characters. You get the idea of what the story is. But, you know, everything's kind of disjointed. So it's, it's like, oh, you know, when you watch a movie trailer, it tells you just enough but not too much that it spoils everything for you, but just enough to entice you to get you to read it. And that was the thing I thought was quite unique about this story, just how Brubaker uh, approaches his comics, because he's done that with um, following series like uh, Fatal, Incognito, where he does the whole movie trailer, and I say that in air quotes, you know, with his comic book previews. And, um, and that also shows in the actual book itself you know, it's it's got a very uh, movie cinematic feel to it, which I think probably stems as a direct result of his previous background. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, the plot overall. So we're introduced to well, so after this failed after this failed heist, we're given five years later, and we see um, Leo in the Contemporary Art Museum. And he is basically just pickpocketing people. Yeah. And then a cop slams him on the wall, and he thinks he's getting busted, right? But it's actually his old uh, teammate or uh, another uh, old crook that he's worked with before named Seymour, who has... uh, Basically said, "Hey Leo, we want you to do a job," and it's with a cop. What's that cop's name? Do you remember? It's Jeff. So Jeff is a loose cannon, and he is a crazy crooked cop. Uh, we don't really know for what reason at first, but Seymour basically says, "Hey, we got a job for you," and right away Leo says, "No, <laughs> I'm, I'm out of it. I am I'm not. Out of this business. I'm not doing this, and especially with a cop. Are you crazy?" And then he's like, okay, man. Or Seymour's pretty much, all right, you know, go do your thing. But Seymour kind of knows a way to get him looped back in, which we're introduced to later. So Leo, um, we follow Leo as he goes to a bar and then ends up going home. To And we're introduced to his um, dad's best friend who's old and has Alzheimer's and is doing heroin. Party. It's a party, right? <laughs> and the reason I'm bringing this up is because we're shown that he's in need of cash. Yeah. Leo needs money to take care of... What's this guy's name? Ivan. Ivan. Sorry. Bad mm-hmm. names today. He's all right. So is he. Yeah. <laughs> but it also kind of shows that, you know, Leo, even though he's a crook, he has a heart of gold. Like he has... Sentiment and attachments. You know, he's not a um, completely selfish character, so that endears him yeah. to the reader. And and we're proven to that when there's a knock at the door, and it's a moderately attractive woman. 
And Leo uh, is like, who are you and what do you want? And she's like, do you remember Terry Watson? And that's one of the dudes who uh, got killed. <laughs> oh, hey, I'm boss, sorry. you remember Terry Watson, man? All right. He got shot up in that bag house about five years back. <laughs> He's wearing that dang old fox mask, man. He, you let his ass get shot, I tell you. What? I ain't Greta, by the way. All right. <laughs> Here's you sure do look handsome with that Fu Manchu or whatever he is. Goatee. All right, I'm done. All right, well, here's my... Her name was Jenny... Greta. Greta. Her name was Greta Watson. And here is her accent. Hello. Do you remember Terry Watson? Oh, that was my husband. Oh, my God. Do you remember Terry Watson? Okay. Anywho, this would be the um, ex-lover, wife, or... Fiance, sister, sis, not definitely not sister, sister wife of sister wife, absolutely of one of his criminal partners who was killed in the prologue, right? In the botch deal, he feels really bad about it. He knows that she has a child at home, and she just doesn't have enough money to to get along. And basically, Seymour went to her and was like, "Look." Leo won't do the job, so I'm not going to do the job. Knowing that she would go bother Leo, and Leo's a good guy, so he's going to do this gig. And this was one of the reasons that he decided to do it. Knowing all of the rules that he was taught on when to do a gig and when not to do a gig is basically, is basically turning up saying no. But he's doing it anyway. Well, he's, he's something we've seen before, you know, in a lot of... Uh, crime fiction, you know, the criminal with good instinct who, you know, sometimes goes against uh, against those instincts because uh, he he or she is trying to do the right thing. And this is called coward, and we're presented Leo as a coward, but as we learn throughout this book, is that he's not a coward; he's just happens to be a smarter criminal and people perceive him as a coward because he looks like he's doing things that aren't macho, that aren't tough. He looks like he's bitching out. He's taking the path of least resistance, but the thing is that's what has allowed him to to stay preserved for so long unlike some of his cohorts. Mm -hmm. His colleagues like uh, Terry Watson back here (laughs) got laid down. (laughs) Oh, I thought you said Terry Watson's back hair. (laughs) Do you remember Terry Watson's back hair? It was beautiful. So I guess in death he has a name. His name was Terry Watson. <laughs> Your name Terry Watson there, man. Back hair, man. So Leo goes to the criminal bar, which is a, which is an idea that we've seen many times in many different... Right, yeah. Criminal bar is, bar is a popular thing. It's a dive bar in which, like, he, he, they tell a story about you know, no one ever gets in a fight. You'll have people's worst enemies sitting next to each other and sharing a pint. It's very chivalrous, is that the... I mean, I think... Civil. Civil. That's how Harley talks in my head. Oh, yeah? Yes. Just like this. That's good. <laughs> you might take your glove off if a man offends you and wrap it across his cheek, but never shall you pull a little gat. Seymour is called by Leo, and Leo says, all right, I'm going to do it, but I get to pick my own team. And at that point, we're introduced to... Donnie. Donnie, and his shtick is that he fakes epileptic seizures. 
Even though he is epileptic. Even though he is epileptic, which is quite funny. Yeah, but he, he says the reason he's so good at it is because he is epileptic. We're like, oh, well. I'm, I guess I, I can do this convincingly because, because I can do this for real. <laughs> which I thought was pretty neat. So uh, Leo comes up to him and he's like, hey, you want to do a gig? And Donnie's like, with you? Count me in. So we know that Leo's a very well-respected criminal. We're all, we, at that point, are also introduced to the reason that the cop is involved. And he has been working for the mob boss, which is Royal T. And that would be R-O-Y hyphen L hyphen T. So it's Roy L. T. Roy Lawrence Taylor. That's what I'm getting. See what he did there. See what he did there is it sounds like royalty, but his name is really just Roy. No L T. I I do have a question because when I read this, I borrowed the single issues from a friend of mine, and I know you guys read read it digitally via Comicsology or whatever. But uh, I was curious: were the essays? They can't. They come in each issue in the back. Okay, so that's something I want to talk about real quick. Was you know, two thousand well, early two thousands. That was around the time when trade waiting became a very popular trend mm-hmm. in comic books, where people stopped buying monthly comics and just opted to buy trade paperbacks. Because in a lot of instances, if you did the math, the trade paperback was a lot cheaper yeah. and it's a lot easier to store. So people were just like, I'm not buying this monthly series. Even though I love it, I'm just going to buy the trade. Well, and that was also as a direct result of, you know, kind of what what Marvel and Venus were doing. Oh, never mind. Sorry. Yep, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely as a result of the terrorist attacks on September 11th. Um, or the day that uh, Bad Kid died. Um, oh, <laughs> thanks to Bad Kid. Bad Kid died. <laughs> no, no, we, we've talked about it before, but just like with with Marvel kind of forcing this idea that there had to be six issue arcs, mm-hmm. you had an idea of Which, how this long, is a five issue story. Right, yeah, you had an idea of when it would end. Like, all right, just wait. Yeah, exactly. Three months, six months, and then I'll. It was it was super popular with. You know, well, in the old days, it used to be iffy if something exactly. was going to be collected, but pretty much by the early two thousands, especially it was the, the ultimate, the ultimate, ultimate series, series. Like everything was coming out in trade. Six months, you're going to get a trade. So, Brubaker was one of the handful of people who opted to try and incentivize people reading monthly comics and supporting books because you know the thing is the truth is. Uh, books don't survive on the trade paperback sales. They survive on their month-to-month sales because a, right. a creator has to be able to show their publisher, hey, look, this is how much we sold of this issue, this is how much we sold of that. It's basically the equivalent of ratings for a television show. It doesn't matter how many people buy the box set after the fact. Right. It's the ratings they get beforehand that keeps them on the air. So what Brubaker uh, started doing and has done, still does with all of his other series is he has essays in the back of each single issue. And for the criminal series, um, you know, some of them are uh, writings of characters within the story. Like in the back of issue one, it's a it's a, a gnarly telling a story about the de- the funeral for uh, a character mentioned in the book named Ricky Lawless. Um, and you know, in following issues, he has interviews 
uh, with uh, other you know famous crime noir enthusiasts. Uh, there's even one done by Patton Oswalt where they talk about their favorite crime noir films. And each one of them has beautiful illustrations. Uh, a lot of cases by Sean Phillips, some cases other artists. But um, as the criminal series progresses, like I said, uh, Jess Nevin starts taking over. And like I said, they have um, essays and articles about you know crime noir films, various crime noir novelists and writers like Donald Westlake or uh, Raymond Chandler. So that was his whole effort to try and get people to buy this book on a monthly basis to say, hey, here's there's some extra material in here, and you know make it worth people's while. But I just figured I mentioned that, which they're not in the trade paperbacks. I know that. So they, with this book being taken from Icon to Image, mm-hmm. they are re-releasing the volumes with. Oh, okay. So the first volume just came out mm-hmm. with the added stuff that came with the trade. That's the tenth anniversary thing. Yeah, yeah. They did the tenth anniversary like. So and they're doing that for every volume, uh, I think, every six months or something like that. Okay. As, and it's being published under Image instead of Icon. Right, right. right. So now you can actually get them. I, I'm assuming you could probably still get them on both, because I know that I saw that it was available to purchase on Marvel's app, but that you could also read it through Comicology through Image. Mm. Yeah, you can purchase on the Image app, too. So yeah, yeah. Pretty, I think you can purchase on all of it. So we're introduced to Roy LT, and we don't know what is really going on, but we know that um, Jeff lost something of his at this point. Um, Jeff being the, the shitty cop. cop. The shitty, hey, shitty cop. Fast forward to the first meeting of the entire team, which is including uh, Donnie the Epileptic, uh, Seymour, Jeff. It's also including... Uh, Greta, and then there is a scuffle between um, Jeff and uh, Leo because Jeff is bringing more cops on. Yeah. And they, I mean, you can, and you know Leo's not stupid. He knows everything is going south at this point, but he's going to do the gig anyways. And let's, I guess, talk a little bit about what the gig is in general. Amos, what, what are they trying to do here? Man, this is like what the law school was like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here. Uh, they're planning their heist of the diamonds in the evidence truck. Diamonds in an evidence truck. So their plan is that Donnie is going to be in front of a broken down car in front of the highway pass that the armored truck is going to need to get onto. And Donnie's going to, whatever, fake an epileptic seizure of some sort, and then Greta's going to come out and be like, help, help, and then they're going to have to go a different direction into an area in which they can take the diamonds out of the armored vehicle. So that's the plan. And the reason that everyone's angry at Leo, everyone being the cops, is that he's like, you can't bring guns, and I'm placing you guys. I'm going to tell you where you're going to be able to go, because this is my gig. And Seymour kind of meets in the middle and says, well, these cops can be part of the team, but Seymour, uh, but, uh, but Leo, you're, you can place everyone. And then we're given the... Uh, we're giving the spiel about what's going to go down. And of course, 
Greta says, you know, this stuff is all fucked up. Right. And he's like, yeah, no, we'll have a getaway plan. Which, that is a very classic scene in a lot of uh, crime films where you see... You see where stuff can go south, but yet the protagonists, they go through with the score anyway, and you're just hoping they get out of it alive. Sometimes. Reluctant at first. Yeah. It goes along, and it becomes a thing. So the deal goes down, and it goes down the way I described earlier, except when the armored truck is under the interpass where they're supposed to rob it, the cops come out to stop the robbery and end up shooting at Leo, Greta, and uh, Donnie. And I think it killed Donnie, right? Donnie is killed along with Red and, uh, yeah, yeah. I think two of the cops, Jeff's cop partners. Donnie, who shoots the cops, though? Greta does. Greta does? Okay, so Greta. And it's a really cool scene. Uh, can I also comment on the fact that there are no uses of bang or pop or it, nothing written out. No onomatopoeias. No onomatopoeias, just blood and explosions. And I think that really works for this uh, style graphic novel. It would be pretty, pretty weird. Blam! Yeah, blam behind <laughs> like a big head explosion. Kablooey! Smack! As he's doing smack. I guess that's sort of a testament to Sean Phillips' art style. Um, I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not, I forgot who's inking this, but, you know, Phillips has a very, um, a very rough style, but at the same time, he doesn't clutter his panels with a lot of excessive um, crap. So, I mean, you know, having word balloons would just kind of drown out whatever he's, because, like I said, that's I think that's something that kind of lends to the whole cinematic, you know, feel of this comic is that you don't have those weird warblers. If you did, that would make it too much like a comic I'm book, yeah. less like watching right. a film. They shot Jimmy. His head went kablooey. <laughs> Crying about it later. Yeah, it was a kablooey. It was that was Greta. It blammed all over my windshield. Head went kablooey. <laughs> so Greta got shot. She's bleeding pretty bad. And there's an escape mini that was parked. How um, how noir is that? It's like a little like it's very Italian job. Yeah, yeah very Italian this job. This was around yeah, the time the uh, remake was out. God, was that? Yeah. And, mm. So they uh, they get out with that, and they end up going to a farm that um, is in Leo's family. And I guess a little side note is Greta's daughter is with her mom and she passes out in the car on the way there from blood blood loss blood loss and also Leo's uh, pseudo uncle what was his name again? Ivan Ivan Ivan. God I forget his name every time Ivan the Smack Guy is also up there with him I think we can just call him this is my uncle Ivan the Smack Guy (laughs) oh uh, Uncle Smacky (laughs) And then they find out that it wasn't diamonds at all, but it was a whole bunch of heroin. Almost as good as diamonds in most any economy. <laughs> we also find out that if they, just, if they would have just left the heroin, that this probably would have been all over. Because it would have been returned to royalty. But it's not. Now they're on the run with royalty smack. And uh, it's not good. The royalty with cheese, as it was. Smack with cheese. 
Any thoughts about uh, the book so far? I mean, it's it's, uh, it's the the narrative moves around moves along at a good enough pace. I think that the 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 trappings that sometimes books that aren't comic comic booky comic books you know fall into is that they have to their their tone can be monotonous or plotting or especially you know with with setting up something like this um, you know you want to make sure people are along for the ride uh, so to speak <laughs> well in, in, a, in a situation where you're you're planning something so you know you can't you can't execute in a comic book like you can on a film and so there has to be a lot of um, you know, upfront dialogue or uh, you know exposition. exposition about what's to transpire, so that they can cleanly show the action in a few panels. Right. So we've praised the panels already for being you know what they are, not overly crowded or or whatever. So I think the book does a good job of getting to that place, allowing those panels to work, and then keeping the the not necessarily the action, but the narrative moving forward. I mean, that's it. it it's a very good book from that aspect, and it doesn't fall prey to some of the trappings that sometimes these books can. Because, you know, even for a book like, uh, and I referenced it earlier, but Powers, that I really enjoy, it has a tendency to get really, really, really caught up in itself and some of its subplots and things, and it plods along. Powers is very dialogue-heavy. Mm-hmm. And I would say, as far as this book goes, I mean, it's just the right amount between the, you know, character exposition and you getting inside of you know, his head and what he's thinking or how he's assessing the situation. But just like the conversations between the uh, the characters, they he, Brubaker isn't trying too hard to be witty or snappy, which is something I think, you know, is a wrong lesson a lot of uh, neo-crime directors learn from Tarantino. They tried to imitate this whole staccato style uh, of, of dialogue. Pop trade. culture references back and yeah, forth. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and you can tell, you know, he's not trying to do that at all. He's definitely doing something that harkens back to the 30s and 40s, but like I said, feels very modern. It's, it's economic, I feel, in the storytelling. It's not too much. It's just, it's just the right amount to keep you interested. Yeah, I zoomed through this book. I mean, I, like... I was on a plane to L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, just from San Francisco. So yeah. it's not like a long flight. And I zoomed through it, man. This sounds like the start of a noir story. It was. <laughs> from San Francisco to L.A., I read in depth and quickly. That's Chinatown. <laughs> Good movie. Absolutely. So they're in this cabin in the farmland or woods. Woodsy farmland. And Farmy Woods. He bangs. I'm. I'm just gonna go right to it. Is that he ends up um, banging homegirl? Yeah. Uh, a lot of cheese in that scene. Yeah. <laughs> a whole lot of cheese in that scene. And the reason I bring that up is because when he's doing that, the next morning he's also gun wood. What the hell? Yeah. yeah like, like, did, now, I said she had a gun wound. She got no. No. Yeah, I'm just saying like she's banging with the. Yeah, right. really and he had sex in her gun wound? No. <laughs> she just, she's recovering from her gun wound. Hey, girl, I see you got an extra hole. Let's go around. Yeah. And she says something like, you know, she's in the bathroom looking at herself in the mirror, and he, asks, he walks in, and he's like, oh, sorry. And she says something, to me, it was ridiculous. I mean, I know that when you have these you come to kind of pulpy noir <laughs> stories. I hope you can buff, bust both of my stitches. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway... 
Yeah, uh, I mean, there was a lot of cheese in it. I mean, yeah. uh, I'm trying to find the the scene, but uh, <laughs> maybe it's a little bit later because they are. Oh, I feel like it's a pun to say hold up. <laughs> um, <laughs> they are John Lamb. See, they're in this. They're still in formulas. Yeah, so it's later. It's not like the di- the next day, but I don't know how long it is. But yeah, between yeah, he says like, "No scars just make your body more beautiful, Greta." And then she says, "The only ones I worry about are the scars on the inside." <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of cheese, uh, but they uh, they get it on, and then he sleeps in. And his um, uncle Ivan, the smack user, finds the smack and overdoses, which is pretty sad. Yeah. But at the same time, you can tell that Leo is having mixed emotions about it because he gave himself some pleasure for once. Mm-hmm. And because of that, someone close to him died. Right. And so it's like the one time he did something for himself, it also gets screwed well, up. That'll show you never do anything for you. He does. He tries to do stuff for other people. Right. He gets screwed up. He tries to do stuff for himself. He gets screwed up. Like it doesn't matter if he lives by the laws or he doesn't. Like he's just he's just screwing up left and right. Yes. So he's really sad about it and buries the guy, and because of that, says some words to Greta, which he, um, which was mean. I don't know if he regretted it or not. I suppose he. I suppose he did. It regretted it. Get it? Greta? Regret? No. <laughs> regretted. Regretta, regatta, sailboats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sailing away. At that point, he he decides he's going to try to sell this smack. Or at least try to make some money. He wants money. to get it back in the hands of... Uh, he wants to find out who it belongs to, get it back to them... So maybe the heat will die off of them and they can go back to their lives. Because as far as Jeff, Seymour, and the uh, guys who turn on them during the whole uh, armored truck heist, no, Greta's dead. And, well, uh, Leo is just in hiding, so. Yeah, because earlier he... He went to the mattresses. Yeah, earlier he tried to leak that she was dead. (laughs) Literally. He drives back into the city and leaves her there, right? And she ends up calling her mom, which is a mistake, pretty much giving away her location. He, of course, does not know that. And uh, what happens when he's in the city? He's just trying to find out, right, who who royalty is and all that stuff. I think that's what happens. No, he's, well, he's talking to his friend who works in internal affairs at the police department. So I'm assuming, you know, she's investigating Jeff and, and the other crooked cops. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have really have much help for him, and and you know we basically don't see this woman again after this scene. So it seems like it's just giving him something to do, so that Greta can you get know, killed. Can well, yeah. We're introduced to a new bad character who is basically a giant fat cowboy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, what's his name? You remember? Giant fat cowboy. Uh, Del- Delron? Yeah. Delron. Delron. Has okay. anyone met anyone named Delron? <laughs> Delron? I'm sure I might be. I'm sure I've met a Delron. Delron the fucking Homo sapien? Have you ever met a <laughs> white Delron? Name? Have you ever met a white Amos? White Delron. Delron does not sound like a name I would ever run into ever. Delron. It's, well, you know. 
Is it like someone names their kid that, or is it short for something? I have no idea. Is it short for like short for Delronian? And it's like Italian. Well, hey there, I'm Delronian Del- McCoy. Delron, Del- I think, was Hunter. to the seventies. What Jaden is to the two thousands. Oh God, it was it? Yeah, I can see that. There's a lot of Jadens, Cadens, Haydens. <laughs> Just that shit. I think that's what Delron. Every time I hear it, I say Hubbard. I can't help myself. <laughs> Dale Ron Hubbard? <laughs> I know about Elron. Right. Yeah, later on. No, I'm sorry. Not Elron. Aleron. Aleron. That's kind of cool. I know. It just sounds like sounds fucking like like chemical companies or something. <laughs> like, here at Aleron, we value the well-being of our customers. Maybe <laughs> anything of a, else. Made me think of a Lord of the Rings character. <laughs> I am Aleron, son of Caleron. We were on marshes. Kate, when she looks at the labels and uh, reads cotton in Spanish, which is Algodon, she always reads it as Algodon, son of Almathon. She's like, <laughs> like cotton, which was descended, of course, from yeah. somebody who was a ranger of the north. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry. Delron, the fat cowboy. Um, Delron and Jeff? There's a rapper name. Delron works for uh, Royal. Tea. So Jeff and Delron go to Greta's mom's house to find to posing as cops. Well, Delron's posing as a cop. Jeff actually is one. But basically to try and work the old lady over and find out if she knows anything about mm-hmm. the where beings of And and they do, and they take her kid, right? Well they kill her. Yeah. They kill, kill grandma. grandmother. They kill grandma, take the kid, and then go to they're able to trace, like when uh, Greta calls her mother to tell her, you know, what's going on. They will, they intercept the the answering machine. They're able to trace her call, and basically, they're going to go to the farmhouse. I feel like these guys, the the scene where they kill the mother or grandmother, or whatever. These guys are overly trigger happy. I think that's Delron because when royalty says that he wants. Jeff to team up with him. He seems taken aback by it. Like, okay, yeah. oh, anybody but that motherfucker. Right. But so Delron is a lunatic. Yeah, Luke Delron's the lunatic. The fat cowboy. <laughs> he looks like Chris Farley. He's like, uh, yeah. he's like, what was my man's name from that terrible Punisher movie? Not the good one with Dolph Lundgren, the bad one with Thomas Jane. Uh, uh, oh, heck, what was the... The fact that you're trying to remember something from that movie baffles me. Greta answers the door, and sooner or later she gets killed somehow. I mean, she gets shot, and that's that. Yeah, which I really did not expect for uh, Leo to get back to the farmhouse and Greta to be dead. Yeah, you would think, I mean, what exactly is their goal? They, They really just want the drugs back. Well, I'm sure they don't mind killing them because, you know, they messed it ties up, up any loose ends. Seems weird Royale. to kill her... Instead of I, I don't know I guess they don't need her. I mean I guess there's not much reason to to see Leo as a threat because he's mostly just a pickpocket. It's not like he's some amazing murder dude. Well, the thing is, Leo's got no money, so he's <laughs> not going to get very far. Murder dude, <laughs> Leo, the amazing murder dude. <laughs> it was the original name of this comic book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like noir, but you know, it's a comic book. What? So Leo rolls up to. Um, the close, farmhouse. Yeah, close to the farmhouse, and uh, Seymour pulls a gun at him. Yeah. 
And uh, Leo's like, look, I got the heroin. It is in my trunk. So Look, I've got the heroin. <laughs> so cometh to the trunk if... <laughs> cometh to the trunk if... Exactly. He pops the trunk, takes some heroin, throws it at Seymour's face. Seymour is like, oh no, heroin, my only weakness. <laughs> and then kind of like melts. And then um, oh, shoots him in the head. The way, the way he talks about that, what would a face full of heroin do? Uh, he, um, he makes it sound like that could kill a person. Um, well, he, he slips a hole in the package. So, I mean, I guess he inhaled some of it, but well, would so that really take effect? Heroin is not a drug that's meant to be in your eyes. Well, we found out this is special heroin. <laughs> There's like it's twice as powerful. Yeah, that's true. Super you potent. can cut it. Super you said you can cut it four times. Four times? That's what it said in the book. Okay. That's a lot of cutting. Um, yeah, well, so, so here's the thing. I mean, it's that, you know, heroin is a drug that you have to be really careful with exactly how it's introduced into your body. Yeah. Because in its purest form, I mean, it will absolutely, I mean, even it, when, it's, when it's melted down, essentially, and placed in a syringe and put into your blood, like, it has incredible properties that sends you into an entire different state of consciousness for most individuals, right? So to have it pure, especially if this is Super Erewhon Kenobi... <laughs> super Erewhon! This, uh, this episode is going to get pulled just for this part of the conversation. Well, the name is going to be Smurf Super Heroin. So, Erewhon. <laughs> you know, it, that... Hitting your eyes, right? Because, I mean, some, some people will actually inject heroin into their, their tear ducts, like their eyes. Like, hitting your eyes directly... Uh, it, it would basically go directly into your, your sinuses, which would then start triggering an entire like host of problems. Similar to uh, Uma Thurman's character, which yeah, was the, the heroin in uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, she thought it was coke. And yeah, that shit won't stop your heart. Yeah, so... <laughs> so anyone listening out there, heroin strong. Fast acting, tough acting, tenactin'. Leo finds a key to the Lark, which is a hotel nearby. He goes back to the farmhouse, confirms what he thought to be true, and that his boo is dead. He catches the place on fire um, and walks away. He goes to the lark, in which he knocks on the door. He straight up knocks on the door. Oh, the lark, what is that? Oh, that's the hotel. Well, he doesn't knock on the door. He, he doesn't? No, he uh, waits for Delron to come out. Oh, uh, okay. And then... Pulls a Leo. He tries to uh, assail him with a gun, and Delron is season. faster than he looks. Yeah, Delron kind of whoops his ass there for a minute, except because Leo is such a good pickpocket, he has pulled the knife from Delron's back pocket area and slices him up in a very surgical way. Yeah, he, he goes like a few different punctures, like specific puncture <clears throat> points. He cuts up. Which is kind of weird, because, I mean, why not just stab him in the throat? You know that works, too. Yep, but he doesn't. Well, he makes the statement that uh, Tracy Lawless, yeah, back when he was a kid, taught him how to cut, how to, how to cut somebody and kill him properly with a knife. You know, because Tracy... The throat? That's pretty proper. Well, yeah, but still... It just seems, it's just weird to me that he does this, like... Surgical ninja move on oh, Delron like cuts arteries, but it'll bleed out fast. It's a fat dude, so maybe maybe he's got neck, a lot of throat. The neck fat. Well, he does, yeah. Delron does. That's have a, a lot of neck fat. Amount of neck fat. 
Don't you don't know how sharp that knife there's is. A lot of, there's a lot of giblets to get through. <laughs> yep, we got you can't fuck around. You can't get through a wrong fan that was ten inches. He's retelling the story later on at uh, Criminal Bar, and he's like, he's like, this motherfucker had twelve inches of giblets. You know, like the height of a smurf. Giblets, <laughs> the height of a Belgian smurf. Gnarly, it's like you need to leave. Leo. Did you read Frank this afternoon? <laughs> You've been listening to Cog Trip. Luckily, the kid is alive and in the lark. Yes. Greta's daughter, Angie. So, yep, Greta. Someone they won't kill. Someone they won't kill, which is great. He grabs um, <laughs> the youngin. A hot pocket. Brings right. the youngin to uh, gnarly at the uh, undertow. Yeah. Gnarly crime bar. Crime, crime bar. Poor gnarly. He's always taking care of Leo's shit. Yep. Doesn't Leo? I mean, doesn't gnarly have a girlfriend or something? That will be addressed in later issues. Oh. Leo kind of tries to heal himself up as best he can, and then goes into With his powers. Yeah, and then goes into uh, Gnarly's closet, and Gnarly has a bunch of awesome things for him because it's a criminal bar, and all this stuff was confiscated, including like quaaludes and uh, crank and uh, what else? Some knives, a gun. Yep, some of that. And he decides. To go to Roy LT's uh, base alone to fuck some shit up. So, uh, Sequoia, what happens? So, uh, like I said, Leo, being the smart criminal he is, he stakes out the place and, you know, he basically comes to the realization that, you know, a guy like Roy LT uh, keeps himself locked away in the fortress. And, you know, basically that there's a flaw to that, that, you know, they won't expect one man to come in and take care of business. So in a very sneaky manner, Leo managed to, manages to distract the guards and work his way inside of royalties, hideout fortress. The old uh, hand up Mona Lisa skirt. Nobody sees it's coming. Yep. Wow. <laughs> Not a family friendly podcast. <laughs> so he sneaks his, his way. He sneaks. His way in, right? Basically, right. And which, by this point, he probably could have let the whole situation go because you know, guys, Jeff got, got the drugs back, um, and even Seymour said that they were willing to let him live. But you can see, like, you know, the thing, like I said, the book's called Coward. And reading this, I felt anything but that about right about Leo, but. He's holding something back, definitely. Um, and after gra- having, you know, after the loss of Evan, Evan. The, life, the loss of Evan, Ivan, and the loss of Greta, pretty much sends Leo over the edge, and he becomes the criminal that he try. He's trying so hard not, not to, to be, be, right? And the criminal that everyone made fun of him for him not being, right? Everyone called him a coward because he didn't make brash decisions because he didn't kill indiscriminately, right? And all of the decisions that he made throughout this whole book were against his rules, and it brought him to this place. And so what he's doing right now, by killing people, yeah. by like just, just ending this, is kind of his way of making up for breaking his own rules. Because he's already broken all these rules, why keep any? Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's just do wrongs trying to make it right. It's, it's the whole, I've come this far, might yeah, as well go all the way. And you didn't kill... 
kind of made it sound like he kills random people or something. He, well, no, he, well, not he's, in the he's like, going he, after the people that ran that out of the streets. Right. Yeah. 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 Sure, sure. My bad. Yeah, he goes in there and he kills royalty, right? He or, kills the drug kingpin. Who looks a lot like Michael Clark Duncan? <laughs> kingpin. <laughs> I might point out. Uh, and uh, everyone else who's in, in the guy's um, base, I guess. All those people get killed. All his henchmen. Right, and I think that, you know, when you mentioned a moment ago about indiscriminately, like, you know, I I was thinking, it, I, for somebody that has a lot of rules or who had a lot of rules, right, it seems to me that, you know, the, the person at the beginning of this book, if he was going to kill royalty, he would have simply found a way to get to royalty and kill him. As opposed to going in, guns blazing, murdering everybody. Because, you know, these other people simply are in the employ of royalty. And they don't yeah. necessarily have anything to do with the loss of either Ivan or Greta. But he is, you know, kind of colluding those things and has decided to, you know, as you said, kill indiscriminately. So that's kind of what I took, you know, from that. Well, this is almost like it was kind of like he was punishing them for making him break his own rules. Right, yes. Yeah. Um, and he, so he kills royalty... And all the henchmen and walks outside oh. the door. Well, no, no. He kills those guys, but gets subdued by Jeff, who shoots, who fills him full of lead. Looks like Jeff, the dirty cop, is going to get away and pretty much blame this whole thing as like a random act you know, of uh, cr- criminal underworld violence and, and such was. Yeah, but uh, Leo manages to uh, pull it together and put a couple in Jeff. You know, because basically Jeff is the son of a bitch who initiated this whole situation. He was the one who had to be punished for it. I was really worried that he was going to get away with uh, it. Let me point out one thing that in the, that is in quite a few panels in this scene that always kind of bugs me. And it's very weird. What's that? When someone is wearing a jacket mm-hmm. that has a pinstripe or a... Uh, plaid or any kind of pattern. Yes. They're always the drawn. The, same the, the pattern is always very uniform and it makes the person look like an optical illusion. <laughs> okay, so the reason for that is it's done in Microsoft Paint and they just use the paint <laughs> thing. And it That's just, what it looks that like. That more or less is what it is. I mean, I don't know who colored this, so I'm not speaking of their talent, but that's... But it's all the time. You know, see it in every... Well, yeah, work. because it's kind of hard to sit down and draw like a ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I feel like if you could draw all this, you might as well be able to draw like you know, realistic... Sitting, but, you know, I almost feel like that's... Do I need to mail a motherfucker a ruler? Yeah, they have to lay over the pattern as if... Yeah. It's not so much drawing as it is just laying it over in Photoshop right. when they're coloring it. <laughs> Um, you're a, you're a, you're an artist, and you know you get called up by the the uh, the writer, and you're like, hey, in this scene, he's gonna have on a um, a, seersucker, a, a seersucker suit. Fuck you! I'm not <laughs> I'm not drawing a seersucker suit. It's gonna be a, a white Oxford with uh, some gray slacks. Or bitch. worse yet, <laughs> fucking hound's tooth. It's gonna be a hound's tooth jacket with a uh, gingham yes, <laughs> a God. gingham set of shorts. Uh, no, it's <laughs> that's too much shit going on. <laughs> Leo doesn't need a houndstooth jacket. <laughs> so Leo says after killing Jeff, turns out dying is a lot harder than living, a lot more painful too. There's a siren in the distance, like a song calling me home, and that's pretty much the end. Well, that's that's a, all. That's a- that's a pretty good noir line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's why I said it. I yeah, it no, great. it is. I agree. What's funny to me is that this is all monologue. This is all in his head. The last actual line of dialogue is him going, ah, ow. 
Where? <laughs> the top of the, the last page. Oh, that's, that's true. the so last we, actual we, dialogue. That's what he wow. says. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what he's saying out loud. He's not going to have like enough like. Yeah, I know. I know. It, it's kind of a weird abrupt end to me. It, it it definitely makes me think. Okay, more. This story will continue. I don't know. Well, there's more criminal. Does it pick up? Pick See, back I up felt then? like it was a fine ending. It reminded me of a lot of noir films where it kind of just ended. Yeah, like Reservoir Dogs. It ends with everyone dead. Or maybe or Chinatown, or like all things just end. That was the end of this story. Does more happen in this world? Yeah, but that's not the story. So where do we want to put this on our list? Okay, well, so what are the current ones? The top, the top one currently is Batman Year One. one. Okay. Second is Moon Knight. Then it goes Red Sun, Starlight, Planet Hulk, Prophet, Civil War. It, to me, it's probably right around Moon Knight. It's definitely above... Um, Definitely about playing Hulk. <laughs> For me, it's probably right around Red Sun, Moon Knight era. I think that it's better than Red Sun. Yeah. I would put it below Red Sun and uh, above Starlight. I could go with it either way. To me, it's probably equal to Red Sun for different reasons, but I, I, I really enjoyed it, so I would be good with either. Well, you, well Amos, you can be the... Uh, tiebreaker here because I think it goes above Red Sun coming in at number three. So do you think above or below Red Sun? Below because Superman. Hey Dave, if you were to have a band do the soundtrack for this movie or if you were to have someone specifically direct this comic book to movie... Whom would that be? Well, I would stylize this book some and maybe not make it so cookie cutter because I feel like being a comic book, it's all right because it's not in a very crowded genre. I think that once it becomes a film, if you try to make it verbatim what it is in the book, it just looks a lot like other films from that that, that genre. What I would do is I would stylize it some, I'd give it to Nicholas Winding Refn, and then I'd give it a really kick-ass, like, weird, like, pop-scent soundtrack and set it maybe, like, in the late 70s or early 80s. Yes. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I'll go with Tortoise. Okay. I'll go with Tortoise on this. That's cool. My pick 
would get the team that did Ravenous to do this, which is it's a uh, Michael Neiman. The Cannibal movie? Jarvis Cocker yeah. uh, did some of the music in that day. And then the music was done by uh, Damon Albarn. Oh, Damon Albarn, not Jarvis wow. Cocker. But the reason I say that is if anyone's seen the movie Ravenous, uh, the movie itself doesn't necessarily fit the music that's behind it. Mm-hmm. So you can still have a very noir um, filmed movie, but the music be very, um, very cut up and chopped, synthy, but very, very like. Uh, the music is very pokey. Like mm-hmm. it, it sometimes it sounds just like a toy box being wound up over weird like eight oh eights. Yeah, it's good. Like it's it, good. It really neat. And I think that that's what this would need. To your point, Dave, it not being a regular noir film. Mm-hmm. So film it as noir, but give it the soundscape of something a little bit more futuristic. Right. Yeah. I think that that would be a pretty neat uh, take on it. Say, does the director need to be alive? Nope. Okay, so I would have Orson Welles directed because Touch of Evil is my favorite one. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and then he can do the music. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I would have. Uh, are you familiar with the Bad Plus? Oh yeah, absolutely. Jazz, true. Jazz that covers stuff. Have them cover right. like noir songs. Well, no, they do originals too, but oh, yeah. uh, I think they could make an interesting soundtrack to kind of like the I'm imagining something like the intro music to Jessica Jones oh that'd be cool so something along the, those lines the the, uh, the intro music that changed artists every year on the wire oh mm-hmm. yeah that'd be really cool see the other time it's one of those I'd much rather see yeah. this as a TV show yeah. than a movie honestly what channel Shit. <laughs> Netflix original. <laughs> everything good is that. Yeah, everything on Netflix. Now I'm imagining the Jessica Jones intro with the Frasier theme song. And I really like it. <laughs> Some of that salad and power mayonnaise. Hey guys, I think we did a good job on this one. Let's pat each other on the backs. This was our 11th episode. We appreciate you sticking with us. We uh, hope to bring you some more reviews, pop culture, and uh, just overall bad grammar in the future. Keep listening, and remember, you should read comics, because if you don't, they'll stop publishing them. (laughs) All right, everybody. Bye-bye.